cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others, who provided for them out of their means. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for, Lord, giving it to us, for speaking to us through it. Lord, for preserving it for us through the ages that we might have it even today. It's been read in a language we understand. But Lord, we pray that you would grant to us more than just physical hearing. By your spirit, would you grant to us spiritual ears? Oh Lord, teach us and train us, correct us, even rebuke us for righteousness sake. Father, I pray for your people. I pray that their hearts, oh Lord, their minds, their wills will be transformed as you do your work by your spirit for the glory of your son, Jesus Christ, in their lives. Father, I pray that you would help me, your servant, protect me from error, and may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing and acceptable unto you, O God. You are our rock and our redeemer. And we pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. So it's taken almost 20 years but I'm finally convinced that my wife, Megan, who most of you know, Megan has a legitimate superpower. She's not here this morning. She's visiting some family, so I can say this. I know she's an absolutely wonderful woman in many ways. Many of you know that as well. But I'm saying that I think, I'm convinced actually, that she has a legitimate superpower. <laughs> Staying with me, yeah. Allow me to explain. <laughs> Amen, brother. I was thinking something else. I can walk into any room of the house looking for something. I can be looking for something in the family room, something in the garage, something in the bedroom, something in the kitchen. I can even be looking for something in the refrigerator, the pantry, the toolbox, even my own armoire. I can search for what feels like hours and not find what I'm looking for. You know what's coming next. The moment I ask Megan where that thing I am looking for is, guess what happens? She waltzes right in and finds it within mere seconds. It's unbelievable. I used to doubt my own abilities. Now I'm just convinced that the whole thing is an elaborate scheme. I think I've figured it out and I'm confessing it now. She can make things appear out of thin air. I think that's how she does it. She's been hiding this superpower from me for almost 20 years. Years And I've wondered often, you know, does she just enjoy the dumbfounded look I get on my face when she walks in and goes, there it is. <gasps> Maybe she likes that. That's why she keeps doing it. Or Maybe she gets a kick out of the pitiful excuses I come up with. Oh, I, I didn't look right there, but I looked generally in the closet. Whatever it is, though, let it be known that I'm on to her. I'm on to her now. Actually, perhaps maybe every lady in this room has that superpower. Do you? Seriously, do you? Yeah, you're nodding. Guys? Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? Well, that's funny, uh, but all joking aside, the truth is that all of us, whether we're men or women, male or female, 
All of us are prone at times to not see something that's sitting right in front of our very eyes. And that's why I'm making sure that we spend some time this morning in just these three verses right in front of us. Sure, it'd be easy to gloss right over this text. We're trying to make our way through the gospel according to Luke. It'd be easy to to just move on past it to what comes in verse four, what many theologians and pastors over the years have called the parable of parables, right? Uh, We're anxious to get to the parable of the sower, which begins in verse four. But if we did that, if we glossed right over verses one through three, we would miss something incredibly important about the life and the ministry of Jesus. And something incredibly important for us to know as we seek to fulfill our mission here, to share our lives and the gospel with others, just as Jesus modeled for us. You'll likely remember that from the very beginning of our journey through Luke's gospel earlier this year when we began, I've commented on how Luke is writing kind of like uh, an ancient investigative journalist, right? What we would call today an investigative journalist. He has done painstaking research and he's carefully writing about Jesus's life and Jesus's ministry so that we, and these are his own words at the beginning of chapter one, can have certainty about the things that we have been taught As such, Luke includes details that not only provide historical accuracy, but he provides details that give the church assurance that what the apostles are teaching and writing about, even what we have preserved for us today in the word of God, they're really from the Savior. They're really true. Luke's gospel account is rightly called, and I'll remind you because I haven't said it for a few weeks, the gospel of knowing for sure. It's the gospel of knowing for sure. So in chapter eight, verses one through three, Luke is providing such detail. He's giving some key detail. Luke is writing so that his readers, even us today, can be sure that the good news of the gospel is not only for all people, but that all people are called to be involved. All people play a vital role in spreading the gospel to others. So let's begin our study this morning. Let's begin our study of the text by looking first at the remarkable pattern that is revealed in verse one. If you're taking notes, this is the first of three points this morning, a remarkable pattern. You may remember last week, Jesus had been at a dinner party. He was invited there by Simon, the Pharisee. You may also remember that what happened, and you can look back if you've forgotten or weren't here at that dinner, you'll know that it was quite extraordinary. A woman described by Luke as a, quote, woman of the city who was a sinner. This woman comes in to this dinner party, kind of crashes the dinner party, right? Goes right up to Jesus, falls at his feet and begins to weep. She's cleaning his feet with her hair, right? She's kissing his feet. She takes out this ointment and anoints his feet with this oil. And you remember Simon the Pharisee who had invited Jesus to be there and likely everyone else that was also there, they would have expected Jesus to do what? To rebuke her, right? This isn't appropriate. This isn't right. But Jesus didn't do that. What did he do? Jesus welcomed her. He allowed her to pour out her love to him. He allowed her 
to show her devotion. And he even forgives her. He sees her faith and he forgives her. And then you remember what he did. He used that whole incident to teach Simon and even us about the relationship between forgiveness and love, that those who have been forgiven much will indeed love much. And those who have been forgiven little will indeed love little. And so this woman is a picture of what it means to love Jesus much. Now in verse one, now in verse one, Luke uses the words soon after. He's giving a kind of a timeline marker, not exactly when, but soon after this. He wants to highlight, as he's used this phrase over and over again, the continuing nature of this pattern that Jesus had established. Okay, usually he takes what was just talked about and brings it to light on part of what Jesus does, okay? And what pattern is Luke highlighting here? That Jesus is on the move. He's highlighting that Jesus is on the move. He has not yet set his face to go to Jerusalem. We'll see that in 950, right? Jesus hasn't yet set his face to go to Jerusalem. No, Jesus is actively engaged in what we would call today an itinerant ministry, right? He's going around to different places. And what is he doing? He's preaching and teaching throughout the whole region of Galilee. Jesus is on the move. And while we tend to think of this ministry as one of miracles and one of signs and one of wonders, those definitely occur. But those miracles, those signs, those wonders are but the accompaniment to Jesus' fundamental ministry task. Do you know what Jesus' fundamental ministry task was? Luke says it right here. Proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. Yes, he heals. Yes, he performs these things. But fundamentally, Jesus came to proclaim the gospel, to tell the good news about himself, to tell the good news that there can be forgiveness, that you can be reconciled with God. I want you to notice that Jesus did not come. Part of his pattern, he did not come, as some today often suggest, he did not come just to bring a social revolution. I want you to notice that Jesus did not come, as some today often suggest, he did not come to bring a political revolution. And I want you to notice that Jesus did not come, as it is suggested a lot today, he did not come to bring about a philosophical revolution. Jesus came to proclaim the good news that sinners can be saved, that sinners can be reconciled to God through his life, through his death. And through his resurrection, he came to proclaim this gospel and he came to bring it to bear on all who would believe in him by faith. And listen, the gospel does change. It does indeed change societies. The gospel does indeed impact politics and the gospel does indeed shape philosophical worldviews. The gospel is not merely an ideal that can be co-opted into some agenda for societal change, political change, or philosophical change. The gospel is the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. It is the power of God unto salvation. And Jesus himself, the very word of God, Jesus comes as the gospel. 
I am the good news, he says. John 14, 6, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So come to me. Come to me and believe and be saved. And lives are changed. And then all those other things are changed as well. But fundamentally, Jesus' task was to proclaim the gospel. To underscore this truth, Luke provides what I think is a key detail that takes this pattern from being a pattern to be a truly remarkable pattern. Take note of where Jesus is going in verse one. What does it say? He goes to the cities and to the villages. Jesus goes to the cities and the villages. Jesus takes both the highways and the byways. He goes to the suburbs and the sticks, right? He goes to all the places. Jesus has come to seek and to save the lost. And he goes where? To where the lost can be found. And where can the lost be found? Everywhere, everywhere. Jesus, as one writer says, is not a respecter of census populations. Jesus takes the good news to the people. Now, some of you hear that and you're like, yeah, clear as day. Some of you hear that and you're like, yeah, doesn't that run a little contrary to modern church planting philosophies? I'd say, yeah, it kind of does. A lot of modern church planting philosophies emphasize nickels and noses, right? You know what I mean? Money and rear ends, okay? It emphasizes numbers and potential impact. That's the first thing that people will look at. And so what do they do? There's a focus on cities over rural areas because you can have a greater impact in the cities. By what measure? By what measure? Perhaps we should be balanced as the Bible is balanced. Perhaps we should go to all the places where the gospel is needed, wherever that may be, wherever God calls his people. You see, it's as simple as this, really. Jesus has established a remarkable pattern of going to both the cities and the villages, and so should we. I'm talking to a bunch of people sitting in the village of Granville right now. But we should go to where the Lord leads and bring the gospel there. And be careful that when we assess church planters and assess calls, we just don't look for some man-made measure of success of those calls. Bless the one who's called to a rural area that his church may only grow to 50 people, but they're growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus and they're fulfilling the great commission. Praise the Lord. So we need a city church and a country church, and a church everywhere in between. Jesus shared the gospel in his life with all those who needed him, and so should we. So should we as individuals and as the church. So, but this pattern is not the only remarkable thing that Luke points out here. It's not the only one. For in verses two and three, he's gonna shine a light on the remarkable presence of some women who were traveling with Jesus. And so this brings us to our second point this morning, a remarkable presence, a remarkable presence. By now, we've seen in Luke that Jesus has some large crowds following him wherever he goes. 
In fact, over in Luke 7, 11, you might remember that when Jesus came to the town of Nain, right? What did it say he had with him? A great crowd. Lots of people are following Jesus. We must not lose sight of this important fact about Jesus's ministry in this region of Galilee. He had many disciples who followed after him. Many people traveled with him. Many heard his teachings from village to village, town to town, city to city, township to township, whatever word you want to use, right? Jesus had lots of people following him. And of course, there were also who? The 12, right? They're mentioned. Luke points them out in verse 1. Who are these 12? These are the 12 apostles, right? These are those specially chosen by Jesus to be the ones that he would personally mentor in a deeper way and the ones he would authoritatively send out to be the foundation of the new covenant people of God, the New Testament church. Their presence with Jesus, at least up to the night that he was betrayed, their presence with Jesus is a given, right? It's always Jesus and the 12. And we tend to picture in our head, it's just Jesus and the 12, traveling everywhere, but it wasn't. It was Jesus and the 12 and a multitude of others. John 6 gives us some light on this, right? John 6 picks up at a different place than where Luke is right now, but there's a great crowd with Jesus and he's teaching some pretty hard things. And all of a sudden they start leaving, right? Do you remember this? They're all leaving him. They're like, no, this is too hard. (laughs) Who can believe this? This is too hard. And so there's likely, it doesn't say every single one of them left, but the majority of them left. And then he turns to the 12 and he looks at them and says, are you going to go too? Do you remember what they said? You know, the one time that Peter kind of got it right, maybe one or two times. Lord, to whom should we go? To where will we go? You have the words of eternal life. Only with you. So it's a given that the 12 are with him, but don't forget the crowds. Don't forget the crowds. But what makes Luke's account so remarkable here is not the presence of the apostles. It's not the presence of the crowd. It's the fact that he singles out key women who are also with Jesus. This is a hallmark of Luke's gospel. Luke goes to great lengths in his gospel to elevate the role of women in the life and ministry of Jesus and his church. Think about his focus on Elizabeth and Mary and Anna and the birth narratives there in chapter one and two. Think about his focus throughout the book on women who were healed, uh, even what we saw a couple weeks ago, the widow whose son was raised. Think about it all the way to the end of his life, that who was there with him at the very end when he was on the cross, right? Those women, and who were the first to be witnesses to his resurrection? the women who were following him. These are hallmarks of Luke's gospel to show that even Jesus himself honors and values the place that women have in the kingdom of God here on earth. Now to our modern ears, we're like, yeah, so what? It's expected, right? We expect such a thing. But you have to understand that women were not so elevated in the culture that Luke lived in. In fact, it's ludicrous to think that the earliest witnesses to the resurrection would be women. No one would believe them. Why? Because they were women. That's the culture he was in. Women had little to no rights and were often considered even to be just property. They certainly had no place among the disciples of religious teachers. In fact, the Pharisees of Jesus's day would forbid women from even learning theology. 
know your scriptures, but you can't learn theology. You certainly wouldn't sit at the feet of a teacher. So for Luke to point out the presence of these women, to call them out by name, is truly remarkable. And we would just gloss right over it, wouldn't we? But it's remarkable. You see, these women had experienced the saving power of Jesus Christ. Look how he explains. He says that Mary Magdalene, who is not the woman from the last chapter, right? Mary Magdalene had been possessed by seven demons. Could you imagine that? Torture and torment. We're not given any details about Joanna other than she was the wife of Herod's household manager. Nothing is told to us about Susanna or the many others. Don't miss the many others that Luke references in verse three. All we know is that the healing work that Jesus had done which it references, was only the beginning. It was only the beginning of his total work in their lives. Jesus continued to teach them. He continued to disciple them, to instruct them in his word. Much like the woman we saw last week in chapter seven. They had received much from Jesus. They loved Jesus much. And so they went with him and they supported him in his ministry. So I wanna stop for a moment and I wanna make something extremely clear. I mentioned earlier in our prayers to the people that we are a congregation of the PCA. That's the Presbyterian Church in America. So here's some things that we believe as the PCA. We believe that there are only two genders, male and female, okay? We believe that. And we believe that both males and females are made in the image of God, which means that they are both equal in value and in honor. Both male and female are in need of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Jesus saves both males and females. Amen? Jesus saves both. We do, however, as a denomination that sets us apart from some other Presbyterian churches, we do believe that God has given males and females specific roles, specific roles in the church. If you want to look this up later, doctrinally, it's called complementarianism, okay? Big word, we don't need to fuss over the word. But we believe that God has given men and women, males and females, specific roles in the church. Just as Jesus had both males and females as disciples who learned from him and served him, so our church welcomes males and females to participate in the ministries of the church and even use their gifts to serve the church and to lead particular ministries. Not only do we have women on the staff of our church, but we have an entire leadership team composed of women. Women serve in many varied ways. But the one area, and this is what sets us apart, the one area we believe the Bible makes clear is that women are not called to serve in the area of spiritual authority. What do I mean by that? Just as Jesus only called men to be his apostles, and just as the apostles in the New Testament make clear, like in 1 Timothy and Titus and 1 Peter, make clear that the offices of pastor and elder and deacon are reserved only for men, so we continue that practice today. And I know that's a hard thing for some of you. Some of you hear that and you don't like it. But I wanna make sure that all of us know this, that our practice is not a way to suppress or negate the vital role that women play in the life of the church. We do it because we wanna remain faithful to the scriptures. We believe that that is what the scriptures teach. If you wanna to talk to any of us about it, you can talk to me or one of the other elders, and we'll explain that to you. 
we're not saying that women are second class, that they're less than. We're just saying we believe this is what God has given us. And even when it's hard, even when the world laughs at us and mocks us and scorns us, even when people get up and leave, which no one has done yet, but even when people get up and leave and never come back, we say, we love you, but we're gonna be faithful to the word of God, even when it's unpopular, okay? So ladies, I want you to listen to me. Let me say this very clear. You are important to the Granville Chapel. You are important. Your gifts are important to the Granville Chapel. I and the rest of your elders, we love you and we're really glad that you are here among us. Please continue to use your gifts to care for and to build up the church. We need you here. And we rejoice to share our lives in the gospel right alongside of you. If we had just glossed over those verses, we would have missed a great opportunity to remind us of God's perfect design for his church. So far, we've seen, got RPs here, right? We've got remarkable pattern and remarkable presence. Lastly, I want us to see the remarkable priority highlighted by Luke right at the end of verse three. And that's our third and final point this morning. Remarkable priority. So many have noted not only the emphasis that Luke places on the role of women in the life and ministry of Jesus, but also the priority that their ministry takes on, a priority that is an example for all of us, male or female. It's a priority for all of us. You can see it there in his words at the end of verse three. Look there. It says that they provided for them or him, right? It's either provided for Jesus or Jesus and all the other group. He provided for them out of their means. He provided for them out of their means. Some of you here, are logistics-minded, right? I won't ask you to raise your hand, but I'm looking at some of you. I know you're very logistics-minded. You might say administratively gifted, uh, or as I say, administratively cursed, right? So you'll appreciate what I'm gonna say next. What would it have taken to provide for the needs of this large group? Traveling around from towns to villages to cities to who knows where, what would have it taken to provide for all of their needs? I mean, likely some locations were very hospitable, right? Which would have been common in this, in this culture to welcome people in. But I want you to notice there's also a shift in these verses where earlier in, in Luke, Jesus goes into the synagogues and preaches. It's very likely that by this time, he's not welcome in the synagogues anymore. <laughs> He'd been kicked out of enough of them and almost stoned to death at one of them. So they're likely not welcome. And here they are. And, and so now people might not be providing for them if they're not also um, believers, believers in Jesus as the Messiah. So I don't even, I, I can't do this. My wife's even gone this weekend and I'm already confronted with all the things that I didn't know I, that needed to be done at the house. But I, I think about all the things, just think about the food because that's probably most important to me at least. The guy's like, think about the food. Like, how are you gonna feed all these people? Jesus could have just made food appear whenever he wanted, right? He's kind of done that before, right? But he doesn't. Jesus doesn't just miraculously say, here's your food. Poof, here's your mended clothes. Here's the wagon wheel that needs to be changed. Here's the donkey. You know, whatever it is that they need, this group needs. No, what does he do? Jesus uses ordinary people 
to provide for the needs of the church according to their means. Jesus calls the church to serve the church. I know some of you are thinking, weren't some of these apostles pretty wealthy? Wasn't Levi a tax collector? Didn't uh, Peter and, and John, didn't they have like the, excuse me, James, didn't they have like the fish load of a lifetime? I mean, that dries up pretty quickly. The picture we get is that they had nothing. They left everything to follow Jesus. And so this is what I think is the remarkable priority, is that Jesus calls people, men and women, not just the women. He highlights what the women are doing, but he calls people to advance the gospel by banding together and serving together to provide for the needs. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. Listen, for the gospel to go forth into cities and villages, whether it be then or even today, it takes resources. Yes, it takes money, but it also takes work. It takes the provision of all kinds of gifts to make it happen. And God in his infinite wisdom chooses to call people of all types of means, right? All types of means, whether that be financial or even gifts. God pulls them all together, puts them in a place called a church, right? And says, here, here y'all are. Now use your gifts to make the great